Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The biggest secret of the best traders in the world is that they're just like everyone else. However, they've worked hard to learn the markets and discover what works and what doesn't. But how can you hear about these journeys and get in on the strategies and tactics they use? You can do it by listening to Chat with Traders. Here's your host, Aaron Fifield. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Chat with Traders podcast. This is episode number 27, and I have a very special guest lined up for this episode. The chances are you're already very familiar with who he is, and if you're not, then I'll probably have to presume you're new to the realm of trading. Jack Schwager is the author of a number of widely acclaimed financial books, including the Timeless Market Wizards series, commonly referred to as all-time favorites by many of the guests which have appeared on this show in the past. As well as a best-selling author, Jack is widely recognized as an industry expert on markets, hedge funds, and trading advice. He's also the co-founder of FundSeeder, a platform designed to find undiscovered trading talent and connect successful traders with capital from investors. During our interview, we discuss Jack's lifetime involvement with markets, some of the key lessons he's learned firsthand from interviewing many of the world's greatest traders, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed hosting it because it was an absolute honor to speak with Jack for almost 90 minutes. All right, guys, here it is. I'm Aaron Firefield, the host of Chat with Traders, and here is this week's guest, Jack Schwager. Hey, Jack, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Oh, great. Thanks. Awesome. Well, I must point out, first of all, that I'm not doing quite so great because I woke up this morning with a damn cold, so I'm dealing with a bit of a croaky voice here, which is annoying, but the show goes on. So, Jack, an absolute honour to be speaking with you today. Thanks so much for making the time to come on the show. Thanks. So, a few of the topics I'm keen to speak with you about today would, of course, be how you originally got involved with the markets, like what, and also what inspired you to become an author and some of the key lessons you've picked up from interviewing so many super successful traders. Um, and I'm also keen to find out more about what you're working on these days with FunCeda and other various projects. So how does that sound? That sounds good. All right, great. So, I mean, many people recognize you as an author, 
and aside from your books, may not fully understand your deep involvement with markets. So winding back time, what was your very first introduction to markets? Um, well, other, other than as a kid, I guess, having my, you know, little bit involvement in stocks, very minor, not, not a great interest. My father, uh, you know, bought some stocks sometime, and, and, but really trivial. I mean, that's really, that was, there was no real interest. I wasn't one of these people like a, like the market was, I interviewed many times, really had a passion for markets starting in high school. That, that was not me. Uh, my my real my real introduction to markets really came because I was out of graduate school looking for a job. Uh, I had a a master's in uh, in economics and a minor in math, and I, you know, from a good university, and I figured I should have an easy time finding a job. Uh, actually, it wasn't hard, but I kind of expected to have a job the first day I looked. It ended up taking two weeks, but. Uh, I actually found my own job because I got discouraged with dealing with employment agencies. So uh, I put an ad at the time. There was um, the New York Times had a uh, uh, not, not actually was the, sort of instead of the opposite of the help wanted. They had help wanted, but there was a small section where you could post uh, an ad if you were looking for a job. And uh, I did that, and I just put in the two line, the cheapest ad I could put in, and cost me about fifteen bucks. And uh, basically said something like, uh, you know, major in a main in econ, uh, minor in math, looking for an analytical job. That was pretty much it. And I had about 16, 17 calls. Um, of those, all but one were really uh, the types of calls where they try to make you think that there's a position, but what they're really trying to do is get you involved in a pyramid selling scheme or some other exploitative uh, thing. And I guess they use those type of ads to find people who they hope will be patsies. Um, so, uh, uh, but there was one legitimate, one legitimate uh, response. And I called back on that one and it ended up being the job that I ended up getting, which was for an analyst position uh, with, uh, in the futures research department. And that was my action. And I knew nothing about futures at the time. I knew almost nothing about markets, you know, economics degrees, particularly, you know, even, even today, I guess, have, well, maybe today's maybe a bit different, but still probably don't prepare you very much for anything to do with markets. But back in my day, they did, you know, markets were not even on the curriculum. So uh, I really knew nothing. And, uh, uh, that that's how, but I got into the job because uh, the research and the research director, a fellow by the name of Erwin Shiska, was uh, was the writer of a commodity column for Barrons, and uh, he was looking to replace his analyst who was leaving. His analyst who was leaving was, by the way, Michael Marcus, who was chapter one of the first Wizards book. That's how I met more uh, Michael. Anyway, he was looking for a replacement, and uh, since he had this column, he thought it was a good idea to kill two birds with one stone. And all the serious candidates that he got, or or I guess he narrowed it down to four serious candidates, um, he had each of us write a, a column, and I got you know to a market that he had to write that he had to write a column on anyway, and I got assigned copper. So uh, not knowing anything, I basically went to uh, I lived in Brooklyn at the time. Um, and there's this huge library in Brooklyn called, you know, Grand Army Plaza. And uh, this is way, way pre, uh, well, it's pre, pre-PCs, let alone pre-Google. So you didn't have that type of luxury. 
Uh, so I had to like go and uh, I had to go to a really big library to find stuff. And uh, they had these periodicals. There was one, uh, there, was Ameri- there was an American metals market, I think, a daily. There was a daily newspaper on metals. And then there was a uh, McGraw Hill had a, week, a weekly or a biweekly on metals. And then I found some additional articles. And so I basically did a crash course education. I went back several years worth of reading, reading articles and uh, writing and just reading the uh, background articles I could. And uh, wrote a, wrote a uh, an analytical article on the copper market, which basically is what got me the job. So you could say writing really got me my first job. Well, you more than could say. Uh, I would make it a definitive statement. Writing did get me my first job. Okay, right. Well, that's a really interesting sort of intro into the market. So even um, after you began writing books, you know, a bit later on, you were still involved with other firms. So could you run us through some of the other firms you've worked with over the years and and what was perhaps... Well, I I worked for a number of major brokerage firms. Uh, Some of the early ones have converged into non-existence. But uh, most read the last one. I the one I left voluntarily oh, about twenty years ago was Prudential Securities, and and then for almost all that all my career, except for the first two years, I basically when I was working for brokerage firms, worked as a director of futures research, um, and uh, so there was there was and before that it was uh, Payne Weber and and before that Smith Barney. Those those were the last three major firms that I that I worked for. Uh, subsequent to that, I spent a few years uh, starting my own little hedge fund, and that led to getting approached by a London hedge fund advisory group, which asked me to join as a partner, which I did. And I spent about 10 years with them until we got bought out by a, a London merchant bank called Close Brothers. And after that, I took some more time, wrote a few. And I, book, I wrote books all along my career. But after leaving that, I, uh, I, spent, uh, I spent two years where I mainly wrote books. I wrote three books during that period. And uh, then I uh, got involved in this startup, FunCeater.com, which I guess we'll probably talk as a separate topic later on. And I also do one-off topics, you know, as they uh, tasks that they come up. And one was a syndicated project I did for TradeShark. So that's the... That's a 40-year career in, in two minutes. I guess that's as good as I can make it. Yeah, that's excellent. And just before we move on, just one more um, point I'd like to touch on there. In your sort of research positions, what sort of um, tasks or um, what sort of things are you working on on a day-to-day kind of basis? Um, you mean now or, or previously? In your sort of research roles when you're working with these oh, firms. When I was, yeah, when I was a research director, basically... Um, you know, I was involved in both fundamental and technical analysis. I started out as a fundamental analyst. That was my first job. Um, I didn't uh, I didn't believe in technical analysis at all until one of, I had a technical analyst work for me by the name of Stephen Kronowitz, and I noticed that uh, he he was doing he did pretty well in his calls. Actually, of all the analysts, he was one of the best. And it may, you know, being not like to believe that I'm not a closed-minded person, sort of, you know, said, okay, you know, you know, tell me, tell me about, you know, what you're doing and, and how, you know, how you do it. And sort of, I got to, you know, better understand what the rationale behind technical analysis is, that it's not, it's not just a matter of trying to, you know, look at pictures and, and it's not a, it's not a black magic art. It's, it's really, uh, I mean, the, the philosophical concept behind technical analysis is nothing more. 
then uh, prices reflect the uh, reflect the behavior of all the participants, and and so the influence is on the market. So uh, therefore, there is a logical reason to believe that charts might be helpful. In any case, uh, he was he was my influence, and uh, after spending uh, up to that point maybe five, six, seven years purely as a fundamental analyst. And discovering the fundamental analysis, while it works for some people, it never worked well for me because even when you got the, uh, even when it, even when it was helpful and it gave you the basic idea of what was a bull or bear market, it did nothing for timing. I mean, that's one problem with fundamental. It tells you nothing about timing. And the other problem is fundamentals sort of have a sort of, how much I best put this, a, a almost pathological relationship with uh, risk management in that uh, if you have a fundamental opinion and the facts and the fundamentals don't change, the more wrong you are, the more the more the fundamentals dictate that you should increase your position, which is the exact antithesis of what you should do from risk management. Whereas, because that's explained that a little more, let's say if I decide that uh, that uh, wheat is a good buy at five bucks, if it goes down to four bucks, then it's a better buy, you know? So if nothing has changed, right, so I should buy more. So uh, the trouble with fundamental analysis, it, it has no risk management inherent in it. And on the contrary, it, it has the opposite of risk management. It, 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 uh, it causes, uh, it would cause you to, to increase your position when you're losing. Uh, so, but technical analysis by its very nature, if the market goes against you, unless you're, unless you're one of those rare technical, technical people who are using a counter trend approach, but with that exception, for the most part, virtually any methodology using technical analysis, if you, the market's going to go against you, uh, it, in a, the methodology itself would dictate you're getting out. So uh, that was a, a big advantage as far as trading goes. And uh, when I became familiar with technical analysis, I basically abandoned fundamental analysis as a way of trying to trade. And any trading I subsequently did was always technical oriented. Whether it was discretionary chart reading or whether it was systematic, but it was always technical rather than fundamental. Sure, okay. Thanks for explaining on that, Jack. Um, now, you've written over 10 books in the time frame of about 30 years. So it's clear you have an undeniable passion and a fascination for markets. But what was it? that sparked this? And more so, what is it that continues to intrigue you about markets? You you mean an interest in markets, basically? Essentially, yeah. Well, um, you know, when I I got out of graduate school, I was basically looking for an an analytical job that was not repetitive. And I guess you really can't get into anything more non-repetitive than markets because it's always changing. And, and so it was an interesting way to combine analysis and, uh, uh, and a uh, subject of study that was always challenging and always changing. So I think that's, that's what, what's interesting about it. Uh, it's, also, uh, it's also a place where your opinions are, you, you get your grades pretty instantaneously. Uh, I, I, I should be clear, though, and I know your your podcast is really a trading podcast. I got to be honest, even though I am probably considered one of the experts, certainly in terms of uh, uh, picking the minds of traders and, and trading advice, and and I I do think that what I've written in terms of trading advice is very sound stuff, and 
And I've had so many people tell me it's helped them that I, I kind of believe that it's true. But having said that, I myself do not really consider myself a trader. Um, I'm not particularly talented as a trader. I don't particularly have any grand uh, emotion or passion for trading itself. I do it, you know, sometimes I don't. You know, it's on and off things. Sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. Um, I don't particularly like the emotionalism of trading, which is one of the reasons I don't do it all the time. And also it's a time eater, you know. If you're trading, then it keeps you from doing other things. And so for time reasons, many, many times I don't uh, I don't trade. But for large parts of my uh, adult life, I have traded. Uh, but it's never been a main thing. I've never considered myself a great trader. Uh, you know, I can basically the best I, the most I'll say about myself is I'm that profitable, but I don't consider myself a particularly good trader. Although that has nothing to do with the stuff I write about, which comes from traders who are exceptional and whose advice I think is very sound. Sure, yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the books you've authored and some of the things you've learned and, and been able to extract from the minds of these insanely successful traders. So, I mean, first of all, what inspired you or where'd the idea come from to write your very first book, a complete guide to the futures markets. I mean, what was it about? Oh, it's very good. You're one of the rare interviewers that finishes that question with a complete guide to the futures markets. Usually the question is finished with market wizards and I have to backstep and say, you know, that really wasn't my first book. So the complete guide to the futures markets, uh, it's going to sound egotistical when I say this, but, uh, you know, when I got into the you know, futures research, uh, I, I kind of was impressed with the lack of quality stuff out there. And um, I didn't particularly think that I was great, but I thought that I could do better than anything that was out there. So I, I didn't find what I considered a, a really good book on, on, on the futures markets. And I thought that I could write a better one. And circumstances worked out that I uh, had was leaving a job and rapid, and I would have had no problem going and just finding another job. But I decided, well, you know, I've wanted to write this book. I'll, why not take the time now? So I took a sabbatical. And uh, so what I was trying to write was a comprehensive text on futures, sort of the, defini uh, the definitive text on futures, at least for that time. Um, and um, it was a serious work. So, I mean, it, it runs over 700 pages. It covers uh, all sorts of stuff in fundamental analysis. It covers statistical stuff. It covers, uh, uh, covers all sorts of uh, classical chart uh, analysis. It covers technical uh, indicators. It covers uh, trading systems, uh, testing trading systems, uh, trading. Yeah, it's pretty comprehensive. So. So that's the book, I, and I did that again pre-PC days, pre-computer. I was literally, for those who do stats, I uh, can appreciate this maybe, but I was I had to resort to doing multiple regressions using a calculator, um, which is just a great time time eater, you know, waster. But uh, it would have been a lot easier to do the book in modern times than it was when I did it. And uh, it was only because I was so enormously focused uh, at that time. Um, that I was able to even do it in a year. I also had to hand can do the charts, uh, you know, everything. There was no Excel. There was no, or maybe I don't know if there was Excel or Word or any of those things existed. But you know, this is this is eighty three, eighty four. Um, if if it existed, I didn't know about it. And I didn't have a PC, and I don't. I guess PCs were still probably in their infancy at that point. Uh, uh, 
So in any case, that, that was a really a, a book that required manual labor. And that was the first book that I did. Now, having done that, I, I really didn't have a great <laughs> eagerness to do another book uh, quickly. But I did, along the way, as I was involved in training, and I knew some great traders like Michael Marcus and uh, and some other, you know, people. You know, I was at that Commodities Corp actually for a year. And I knew Bruce Kovner and I knew some other people, you know, who were great traders. I thought, gee, you know, it would be an interesting book to to write going to interview like these great traders and, you know, find out what they do and what do they do that's different and why do they excel where so many fail. Uh, but I had a full-time job as a direct, more than full-time job as a director of uh, futures research and sort of I wasn't eager to, to sort of work nights and weekends additionally on a book. So I never, I didn't do anything for a couple of years, uh, even though I had the idea. And then one day uh, I got invited by a publisher to have lunch and they said, uh, basically the pitch was, you know, that we, you know, we think you're a complete guy, it's a great book. We'd like you to, we, we have this idea for a whole series of analytical books. You know, we want to do one on each market, you know, and we need a chief, an editor-in-chief, and we want you to head up the project. And sort of having done one of those uh, very, very in-depth analytical books, which, by the way, you only do because you're trying to prove something, and you're trying to prove that you can do a really good book, or just for ego, almost, uh, or for self-satisfaction, or to demonstrate, or to just achieve uh, uh, putting out a really good book. But you certainly don't care, or you're certainly not focused on selling, because, and I use this, I say this only semi-facetiously, it really is true as well, that the amount of books you sell are inversely proportional to the number of equations you put in, in a book. And by virtue, and I knew I put more equations in than I should put into that book if I wanted to sell a lot of copies. So uh, maximizing sales was never the, you know, the, my goal on the complete guide. It was basically the, to the book, best book I could that was serious and analytical and, and could be read by a serious layman. It, I think you don't require, it doesn't require really a, uh, a college degree in math or science necessarily to understand, but you have to be serious. Um, that I only wanted to do once, and the last thing I wanted to do was to do it again. So I said, I'm not really interested in that project, but, you know, because I don't want to do a bunch of books that sell very few copies and require a lot of in-depth work. So I said, I have this idea, which is more of a, I viewed more as a math, mass audience book and uh, more of a book that, you know, could reach, you know, just broader audience and be more entertaining to read and so forth. And I told them about the Market Wizard concept. And they really liked it. So I wasn't intending to do the book, but they came back with an offer and sort of that was the catalyst. And uh, and that, that's how Market Wizards got written the first time. Okay, that's really interesting. It's good to sort of know where the idea for that book came from. Um, and I'd like to quote the opening line from the new Market Wizards, uh, which is the second one in the series, where you said, the markets are not random. And you made it very clear that this is a statement that you truly believe. But to what extent are the markets not random? Well, uh, to the extent that they're not random in a, in a couple of ways. And this goes into the whole you know, whole controversy, or which has been going on for decades, uh, between those uh, who believe in the efficient market hypothesis and, and those who don't. Uh, the latter being... You know, a, a, at least in serious academia, 
uh, being behavioral economists. Uh, but of course, originally and even and now as well, uh, the whole whole sorts of people in a trading community. Now, um, I felt from the beginning that 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 concept was wrong for for well many reasons, but two big conceptual reasons. One is I just knew too many people uh, who had obvious trading skill. And it wasn't just they were lucky. They just did too many trades for too long and had results that were too lopsided to be explained in a probabilistic sense that, oh, if you have enough traders, some will get those results. No, I don't care how many, you can have You can have 10 billion traders, you're not gonna get those results, you know. So clearly something is going on here where uh, people are getting types of track records that from a simple probability calculation would be impossible if the markets were random. And that's one of the arguments I always have against uh, the efficient market hypothesis. The second thing is, and, this big, which are, and both of these are big areas and this kind of sub parts to them, but the second big concept of why I think it, people are wrong when they believe the markets are efficient is because prices very often, there's circumstances where clearly the market price is not right. I mean, there's just tons of examples where, um, where where you can show that to be the case. And there's by no stretch of the imagination can you say the market price is right. So I'll give you some, I'll give you, in fact, I wrote a book, uh, my, um, excuse me, my, my next to last book, uh, and it was a non, it was the all, it was a non-market wizard book called Market Sense and Nonsense. And in Market Sense and Nonsense, which I go through a whole bunch of, Each chapter deals with a different set of, you know, different subject of misconceptions. One long chapter, probably I think the longest chapter in the book is is debunking the, the efficient market hypothesis. Um, and one of the things I do in there is I give a number of examples of just, just, come on, in no sane world could this happen if the markets were efficient. And there's, there's a lot of examples. So let's just go, uh, let me take one I mean, there's so many. Uh, so let's say take something like like uh, countrywide. Uh, countrywide, if you had to pick a, a a company that was the worst of the worst, I mean, I don't know who I would pick. You know, in this whole two eight, 2008 financial uh, meltdown and and companies that participated, uh, they you know, in my mind, they should, the the the, uh, the uh, heads of these companies should have ended up in jail, but they walked away for hundreds of millions of dollars, unfortunately. But no one was worse than Countrywide. And uh, Countrywide literally proved everything. You could not, you know, they, their people were instructed to give mortgages. You know, if they, they if they turned down a mortgage for any reason, like just because a person didn't have a job or income or anything else and was asking for a large amount of money, they would be told to find a way to do it. And that was because Countrywide then sold off there. They didn't have to keep it. They didn't have to worry about people repaying. They sold it off to Wall Street, who didn't care, uh, because they repackaged them and sold them off to uh, uh, investors who didn't know any better. Or, or I should say, not who didn't know any better, who were relying on the rating agencies, who were either themselves incredibly dumb or um, compromised and looked the other way uh, and, and therefore are guilty in that sense. But they could only plead either stupidity Or um, or malfe or malfeasance. Uh, there's really no other way of explaining it. But in any case, going back to the origin type of company, the ones who produced these really truly terrible mortgages that just had a, a very very poor chance of being repaid, um, and did so knowingly and had a corporate culture where where negligence was encouraged. 
Nobody, I think, could be worse than Countrywide. And that now, you, I, I just try to get people a sense of how bad this company was. So now a company like Countrywide was depending totally on this housing bubble going on. Because as long as the housing bubble goes on, prices are going up. And no matter how in, incapable people are of paying back a mortgage that you give the, the, the mortgage to, as long as, the mar- as housing prices go up more than they have to pay back, it kind of sort of self-sustains. Yet, yet if, if that stops... You know, a company like Countrywide is going to be in a whole bunch of trouble, right? Not only did it stop, but you can look at something like delinquencies. And delinquencies were sort of, during the housing bubble, were very low at about 5%. And then they start going up. And uh, and they go up and they go up. And they, they went from 5% to 10%. So delinquencies, mortgage delinquencies actually doubled. Now, this should have been like mortgage delinquencies going up is the type of thing that should be uh, a screaming cautionary note, if you know, for for countrywide being subject to collapse. And if you look at the chart, and this is why I say, if you tell me the market price is right, you got to be just blind. And I'm just mentioning, I'm going through detail in one one example, but there's tons of cases like this. Uh, so what did countrywide stock do as delinquencies went du- double from five to ten percent? It actually went up to a new record high. The record high occurred after the delinquencies had doubled, and about a month after the, the record high, the stock collapsed. It didn't stop collapsing until it was went out, you know, until the company went out of business. So, uh, how could you? You can't explain that by the market price being right. No, what was going on was there was a bubble. People were just buying. Uh, people were buying without real insight, and there was enough dumb money that was that was willing to go into the stock because it was making new highs. Uh, even though it was completely rotten to the core and the thing that was vulnerable was already blasted out because th- these were known, these are reported statistics. How, uh, uh, mortgage delinquencies are reported uh, data. So it's no big surprise. And so the market, the collapse of the stock occurred about a year, year and a half after it should have. And it, it occurred right after it made a new high. So that's a one kind of example. So my, my point here is that market prices are not always right. And if market prices can be dead wrong, and you can show many examples where they are, then the idea that, that under, underlies the, the efficient market hypothesis that, that market prices are always right and all new information is immediately discounted doesn't, doesn't hold water because, um, because if market prices are not right, the whole theory falls apart. Um, the, the one place the efficient market hypothesis is correct, and the reason why there's an illusion that it's correct, is because one of the conclusions that come out of the efficient market hypothesis is that the markets are, would be very difficult to beat. And that is true. The markets are indeed very difficult to beat, but not because the markets are efficient. They're very difficult to beat because what moves markets are both fundamentals and human emotion. And human emotion is very difficult to gauge. I mean, how far does a bubble go? When does the bubble break? These things are very hard to predict and very hard to trade. So it's not because the markets are efficient that the markets are difficult to beat. It's because there's such a big influence of human emotion that can't really be programmed precisely and is very difficult to gauge. And so there's this, there's this um, conclusion by people who look at the market and say, oh, you know, the mutual fund managers always, you know, usually lose to the indexes and, and marks are really difficult to beat. Therefore, the market are efficient. Well, no, that's not why they're efficient. Yes, uh, 
markets are difficult to beat, but that does not mean they're efficient. In fact, I'll just, one of the things I put into markets and some nonsense was that line of thinking actually, it violates a basic uh, rule of logic. So there's a rule of logic that says uh, the, the converse of a true statement is not necessarily true. So let me explain that of a simple analogy. Um, a true statement is all polar bears are white mammals. That's a true statement. All polar bears are white mammals. However, flip it around, all white mammals are not polar bears. The converse is not true. Like you could have a, a snowshoe here. So um, the, the thinking that because something is true, if A is true, then B is true, then going to say that B is true, therefore A is true, that's a flaw in logic. And it's done all the time by many people who are arguing the efficient market hypothesis. It's just a straight out flaw in logic. Um, and, and so what they're saying is, if the markets are efficient, then the markets will be difficult to beat. And then give you all these examples of how the markets are difficult to beat, which I totally agree. Yes, the markets are extremely difficult to beat. And then they jump from that back to the markets are efficient. It's a flaw in logic. And I can go on and on, but I think I've uh, killed it. Oh, you know, there's one, I got to throw out one, which, which is this one example, which is so beautiful. Uh, it's a recent one I came across, and I went to see Richard Thaler, who's one of the uh, pioneers, and maybe the pioneer of behavioral econ uh, economics, and a long time um, you know, disbeliever in the efficient market hypothesis. And he threw out this one example, which I just thought was brilliant. There's a um, closed-end mutual fund that has the ticker symbol C-U-B-A, Cuba. Now, what it does is it has a portfolio of stocks that are invested in um, Latin America, South America. Not Cuba, by the way, but, but it does have that because I guess it's a, it's a catchy symbol, C-U-B-A. So that's what the mutual, that's what the closed-end mutual fund is. And like most closed-end mutual funds, it was trading at about, you know, it was trading at a discount. In this case, it was trading at about a 15% discount. Uh, so, which means that if you, since closed-end fund, you can't quite, can't do it. But if you took, if you were able to liquidate the entire portfolio, the portfolio, you know, you're paying 85 cents on a dollar for, you know, for what the portfolio is worth. That was on, on, on as of a given day. The next day, it goes from a 1.5% discount to a 7.0% premium, okay? In one day, this is like unbelievable. So what happened? What happened is President Obama uh, indicated he could normalize relationships with Cuba. Now, the wonderful thing about this example is they did not hold, first of all, it'd be illegal to hold any uh, Cuban stocks and they didn't hold any Cuban stock or I mean companies or stocks or whatever um, and and secondly there was nothing in Cuba to own <laughs> I mean it didn't even exist I mean you know Cuba is a is a true communist country and there's really there are no stocks to own so despite the fact there was no nothing nothing Cuban in the in the um, whole portfolio it went from a 15% discount to a 70% premium in one day because President Obama nor, nor took steps to normalize relations with Cuba. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And yet there are people who argue the markets are efficient, you know, to which I would say, give me a break. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for, for going into so much depth with that answer, Jack. That's, that's really good. 
Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So I'd like to sort of pull this back a little bit to maybe some of the some of the really key lessons and things that you've learned over the years from speaking to the, the traders that you've interviewed for Market Wizards. So let me ask you, in the first two Market Wizard books, is there a noticeable change in trading styles of those featured in hedge fund Market Wizards? Uh, no, uh, actually, I don't think that's really much, there's not much of a distinction in that. Now, hedge fund Market Wizards came, I guess, uh, well, at least 20, almost 25 years, I should say, after maybe the first Market Wizards book. Uh, so uh, it came much later, but uh, it does include people who were around from much earlier. For example, in fact, it includes, of all the Market Wizards books, the, the fellow with the longest track record and the earliest, uh, the, maybe the earliest trader of anybody I interviewed uh, was Ed Thorpe. Uh, and uh, he was in the market wizards, uh, hedge fund market wizards. So although, of course, some of the people, if they're younger in hedge fund market wizards, then they, they are starting in a lady era. But I don't think the there's really that much of a difference. The, the only difference is, is perhaps that in market, the very first market wizards book, and maybe a little bit in the second, uh, there is a, a larger preponderance of futures traders, perhaps, because, um, and I mean by straight out, sort of futures traders, uh, as opposed to uh, people using futures for more um, complex strategies. Um, and that's simply because back in, the, in that day, those were the traders that really excelled and, and there were great opportunities in futures and, and things like trend following worked much better back in those days before uh, people started using the approach uh, a lot. And the early, the early practitioners of system trading, like at Sakota, had these spectacular type of results, which which I don't think you could duplicate nowadays. So that's, I guess, one one difference between the early books and the latter books. But like in both both of the early books and the latter books, you had fundamental traders, you had technical traders, you had people who did both. You uh, you had system traders, you had discretionary traders, and 
Um, you also had a large variety of approaches in any of the books. So I don't think there's a big demarcation, really, that one can draw from the early books versus the, the later books. And I should add on that one, one point. When I, I in, when it came up, when the 25th year anniversary came up on Mar the original Market Wizards, the publisher asked me to, uh, uh, we wanted to do a, a new edition. So I, I, what I did is I actually wrote an additional chapter. So the, the volume that came out, I think it was The Market Wizards that was re-released in 2012 has an extra chapter. And in that extra chapter, what I basically do is I go back and, um, and I say, you know, what do I believe now about markets? And, and I have one chapter about all the key points. And uh, I deliberately did not reread the original Market Wizards when I did it. But the point was that I thought that really that, my views or my conclusions about what are the important elements of trading success really didn't change from when the first book was written. So that chapter really was probably more intended to make the point that not much has changed uh, uh, when you get down to the important facts. Okay, sure. And just to elaborate on that, and you kind of touched on it there, as we're now in 2015, do you believe that the same opportunity still exists in today's markets as it did for traders featured in the original market wizards like besides their trading approach is there the same opportunity provided by the markets or has it become much harder to succeed at trading i you know i would say from a logical standpoint and of course one would have to do a one would have to, do, to give you a, a correct or absolute answer you would need data from from back then and data from now neither of which i have uh, and I don't know. I don't know of any studies that have ever been done on that. And I, I assume in, in all cases, the majority of people, by definition, majority of people lose. But whether the majority was larger, is larger now than then, I, I don't know of any data that would any that would allow that to be answered. However, from a logical standpoint, I would say I would be surprised if it was not more difficult uh, today than it was then, for the simple reason that you have many, many more professionals in the market than you did then. And I think there's a certain amount of opportunity in the markets and uh, uh, and the fewer, the smaller proportion of professionals, and by professionals, it doesn't have to mean people working for Wall Street firms. It simply means people who, who are dedicated to trading and are really good at it and make a living from it. But the larger the percentage of, and of course those are gonna be people who have skills in the markets, obviously by definition. But the larger the proportion of those people versus the whole population of traders, the more difficult it becomes to trade. And in fact, I have, I'm sure I have a line somewhere in one of my books, I don't remember where, or, uh, or maybe I just use it in talks, I don't know. But the line is something like, you could take the 100 best traders in the world, whoever they might be, and you could say, okay, you could have this uh, thought exercise and say, if those 100 traders were the only traders that were allowed to trade the markets, the one prediction I could make is that 80% of them would lose, you know, roughly speaking. And that's simply because if they were the only ones that are trading, we know that there's certain transaction costs involved in trading. So the percent, so the amount of money has to be, that's one, has to be less than the amount of money that's lost. So if you, if only the professional traders or, or, skill, or the most skilled traders in the world could trade, by definition, a majority of them would have to lose. And that just makes the point very starkly. So it's obvious that if you go from a small proportion of traders as part of the trading population to a larger uh, proportion, 
you get to a point where it becomes almost inevitable that 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 even even professional traders lose. So therefore, it is safe to conclude that the greater that proportion, the more difficult it is to beat the the markets. And I certainly think there's a much larger percentage of professional traders uh, today than there was say 30 years ago. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's a really interesting concept and, and way of looking at it. So thanks for sharing that with us. Um, I'd like to bring up the topic of failure because this seems to be a common theme amongst many of the traders you've interviewed where they have experienced failure in one way or another and in some cases multiple times before actually sort of making it, so to say. So what's perhaps one of the most extreme cases of failure and recovery that comes to mind? Wow, there's there's quite a few of them. Uh, Probably... Well, there's a number of traders who, who blew up or nearly blew up, uh, some who blew up multiple times uh, in, in the market was a book. So I'm glad you picked out that up because that is that is a common occurrence and from which I, I draw the conclu- I draw two conclusions before I go to some examples. But let me give you the listeners the two conclusions that I get out of that. One is that that early failure or even even terrible failure is not necessarily predictive of future outcome. It doesn't mean if failure you're going to succeed either, but but it does but it does mean that if you have enough confidence uh, and just because you fail doesn't mean you're doomed to fail. There's plenty of people that I've interviewed who were disastrous in the early years and, and turned out incredible. Um, that's point one. And the second point is, well, they they did ultimately succeed because they didn't give up. So uh, th- that is an element of, of uh, excelling is, is this spirit uh, or the self-confidence that just doesn't give up. Now, as far as examples, uh, I could give quite a number, but let's just take one, Michael Marcus, who I mentioned earlier, who was, who was the trader whose job I took when he left to become a trader and who became a phenomenal trader. Uh, but his early uh, experiences in the markets, he, uh, he sort of lost, like, you know, he had a very little money to start out, lost that. <coughs> Then cashed in his father's uh, the, the life insurance. His father, who died in early age, had left. It, was, it wasn't much; it was like three thousand dollars or whatever. But he lost that, and uh, then he started trading and uh, some more money. and And then he kind of uh, hit it, and he built he built up this small few thousand dollars stake into thirty thousand. And uh, I go through a whole story in the book. I won't go through it here. But he then borrowed some more money from his mother, who was, uh, you know, of not not of very good means. You know, barely got by. And but he was so he got so caught that he actually then lost all the money he had made plus a part of her, her money. Uh, so that was his experience, you know. And very few people would have kept on going beyond that. Uh, he did though. And the way that story ends is he eventually did learn how to trade. He did get extremely extremely good. He was talented. And uh, he ended up going to Commodities Corp. They gave him a $30,000 account uh, as a, a starting portfolio. And he eventually built that $30,000 account into $80 million over a dozen years. And he did that while they were taking out 20% of his profits annually for expenses. So uh, one of the probably most successful traders of, of, of all time. Um, and he and, and hard to find anybody who had a more disastrous beginning. Yeah, that's an incredible story. That's, um, that's really, really impressive. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that perhaps some of the traders you interviewed almost had some type of 
natural talent for training? I mean, I don't know if that's the right word. Or would you say that it really is an even playing field and anyone could reach these insanely high levels of success with enough hard work and the right people around them? Yeah, no, I, 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 could, I would say with fairly strong confidence that not everyone could. Uh, for the same reason is not everyone's going to be able to, I don't care how hard you train, you know, uh, you're not going to run, uh, you're not going to run a, a professional marathon time, you know, because you, because most people don't have the body type that will make it possible. Now, can people run a marathon if they've never trained before? Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to train hard enough, you can eventually run a marathon successfully, maybe even at a decent time, but but only a tiny percentage of people will ever run it at a at a world class time, and that's just that's just the way most people's you know most people's bodies are not are not constructed to make that possible. Uh, can most people become soloists with the New York Philharmonic? You know, uh, if they if they take up the violin and practice a lot, uh, no, I don't care how much they practice. Uh, they may become competent. They may even become you know good, but. But very, very few people will 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 become world class violinists uh, just because it requires some sort of innate skill besides just uh, dedication. But in all those cases, people can achieve proficiency and success, but not necessarily exceptional success. And that's what I'm saying. And I think the same. You know, why should trading be any different? So I think people can become net profitable, uh, maybe even decent traders. You know, if they have enough uh, devotion and if they have some skill, more than decent traders, but only uh, a small percentage of people, I believe, have the innate makeup, whatever that may be, to become ex- truly exceptional. And I don't think trading is different than any other profession in that regard. Okay, sure. That's a, that's a really good point you make. So, um, I mean, it's obvious that all the traders you've interviewed over the years were doing extremely well. Um, but even still, did you find that they were constantly looking for ways to improve their trading or did any of them ever strike you as having felt like they'd perhaps mastered the market and were really comfortable with their approach? Um, well, I think, I think um, they were comfortable with their approach, but I think most uh, would always be looking or realistic about if, if things stop working to change and... Uh, there are some people who are pretty exceptional at going from one strategy to the other. Ed Thorpe is a great example, who you know started out uh, by actually uh, he, his background is a uh, well he had a PhD. We didn't get the PhD in physics because he never finished his thesis. But uh, the reason he didn't finish because he went he decided he didn't know enough math and then ended up with a PhD in math and then never wrote his thesis in physics. Uh, so he was a real quant guy, uh, but he got involved eventually in markets. So he's famous. His, his fame in the world, by the way, is not markets. His fame is to the world because uh, he wrote this book, Beat the Dealer. He figured out uh, uh, mathematically how you could win a blackjack. And he wrote this book that sold millions of copies and uh, and actually is the person who's responsible for casinos changing the way uh, they uh, uh, they handle blackjack, multiple decks, re- reshuffling all of that uh, due to his book. But... Um, he uh, that's sort of a tangent to, to go back to the markets he decided the real place to make money was the markets and he was the first one to figure out the mathematical equivalent of the Black-Scholes model which he did quite a few years before uh, uh, the Black and Scholes uh, 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 published their, pay, their famous paper 
Uh, so for a number of years, he was trading options very successfully, probably the only person in the world who knew to price them. So he, he was making massive, massive amount of money with very, very, you know, almost no, no drawdowns. Um, then he went on, but as, as, as the efficiency went out of that, he became involved in statistical arbitrage. He developed that. He developed convertible arbitrage. He, he developed various strategies going from one to the other as each strategy started to lose, lose its edge as more people became familiar with the uh, approach. So uh, he's a perfect example of somebody who starts out with one strategy and goes through completely different strategies by adapting to the changing market conditions. Even within a single strategy like statistical arbitrage, I'm not going to go into the details because it's too too specific for this type of broadcast, but even within that strategy, he changed the way that strategy worked through several iterations as the markets were changing, each time making the strategy again have an edge. Uh, and that kind of, that's in the in the interview. I don't wanna, uh, I don't think it's, I think it's too detailed to go into in this podcast how he did that. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of, that kind of raises a point which I've heard you talk about numerous times, and that is that most traders tend to come unstuck due to a lack of flexibility. Um, is that what you're getting at here? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, a, uh, uh, that's a trait that probably the majority of traders don't have. And it is a trait that is essential for great traders. And that is the ability to be flexible in every way. And one example would be, uh, to be able to say, hey, this has been a great method, but it's just stopping working, and I, I've, I've got to figure out what does work and why this is not working and change if it's not working. So that's a, that's a way of being flexible. Another way of being flexible is a, one, of, you know, like one of the stories I have in the hedge fund market wizards, a fellow by the name of Jamie May, who's, who goes into a trade, he goes into one trade idea, and this is a guy who does very, very deep fundamental research and can spend months researching an idea and making sure he's got it all right. But he had this idea, say, a few years ago where China was going from being a net exporter of coal to a net importer after years, you know, a whole history of being just a, uh, a net exporter. And he saw this growth in China and could see that there was going to be a tremendous amount of shipping increasing increases going on because of China's demand. And so he had this bright idea of, uh, of getting long shipping stocks. But when he did the research, he discovered that, um, that shipping had actually gone through a boom a couple of years earlier because of a commodity price boom. And there was a whole slew of ships that were coming on stream, a uh, tremendous uh, bulge in, in supply that was coming on stream. So once he became a bit aware of that, he realized that the trade was not buying shipping companies, but being short. Uh, he doesn't actually go short because he's always trying to have asymmetric return risk. So he did that by buying long-term puts on, on shipping companies. And uh, ironically, this big idea that he had, which he put on in exactly the reverse fashion, ended up being his best trade for the year. Again, flexibility. Uh, and of course, maybe the most important way of being flexible is when you're in a position and you decide that you're wrong, it's the ability to, to get out. And if you're really convinced you're wrong, great traders will not only get out, but will be have no problem flipping their position completely around. Mm. Yeah, okay. And I think that this is probably a good segue into my next question, which is, are there any traders you've interviewed and that stand out who, who pretty much just broke all the rules and just did the complete opposite of what you're quote unquote supposed to yeah. do when it comes to trading? One. One. You can take all the traders I ever viewed in my life 
uh, you know, successful traders I interviewed in my life in any of the books, and including ones I interviewed that didn't, didn't go into the books, but only one stands completely alone, completely removed from the whole crowd of other traders. And if there is a, to, to use a cliche, the exception that proves the rule, I don't know. But um, the fellow is a, uh, is a prop trader, a stock trader uh, by the name of Jimmy Balademus. He is the last chapter of Hedge Fund Market Wizards. Now, I should explain how I found, uh, well, let me tell you what, what, what Balademus does. Uh, you remember like a couple of years ago where we had certain commodities going sort of vertical, like silver, which had been going straight up and then it got to 30 and 40s and even I think the low 50s. But if you think about, if you remember what that move was, when it was almost like going straight up vertically uh, in those higher price levels, well, who is selling silver in that type of a market? Jimmy Baldemus. Or cotton, which had gone, which had uh, gone multiples of its prior record highs with the ending, the last days of the rally being these straight up, like a cliff type of huge, huge price moves. Uh, who's selling that market, uh, you know, in that vertical uh, ascent? That's Jimmy Baldemus. So he's taking trades where the markets are going berserk the other way, and he's stepping in and going short. That's the type of trading he does. Um, now, I, I, I kind of say, my first line of that chapter was, uh, Jimmy Baldemus breaks all the rules. And my first, or one of my first lines in the concluding paragraph, uh, not concluding paragraph, concluding summary of that chapter, is um, some some variation of don't try this at home. I mean. I really don't want people to read that chapter and try to trade like Baladimus. And I do draw some some aspects of his trading that do have applicability, but it's, it's actually one particular aspect. Uh, but I want to make clear that I really don't want people to, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, think that this is something they should try. Because uh, 999 out of 1,000 people will go broke doing this. Uh, the, by the way, uh, uh, if, if I was listening to this myself, uh, and I heard somebody saying what I'm saying. Said, "No, nah, that, that you know, that, that, that can't be right. This guy couldn't be successful doing that. He's, you know, uh, he, you know, the, the, these numbers can't be right, and and he's going to blow up. Well, I don't know. He, I guess, he theoretically could blow up, but as far as not being right, the, he's been sort of one of the best uh, traders in his firm now for many, you know, for, I don't know, 15 years plus. Uh, and the way I know." And he makes millions every year, or you know, I guess you know, maybe in a bad year he he comes closer to breaking even. But he's made a he's made a large amount of money uh, trading this way. And for those who are skeptical, wonder how how can I believe this is true, particularly for a prop trader. And people who are familiar with prop firms know you can't get track records from a prop firm. They just there's just no way of doing it because uh, that's they they just won't give out their numbers. So how do I know that this is for real and he wasn't like pulling a fast one on me? My son got a job as his trading assistant. Um, and one day speaking to him, he said, Dad, you wouldn't believe this guy I'm working for. And of course, being in the company, knowing of his reputation, uh, he knew, and he also, he, he entered all his trades and he knew his numbers. And uh, so he knew he was for real. And uh, and that's the only reason I was able to put that chapter in the book, because otherwise, I would have been. I would have said, "No, this this can't be right." This guy asked, "Does this this can't be true?" I would not have believed it myself. But if I didn't have my own son uh, for verification, I wouldn't have believed it either.
So, uh, but for those who are wondering how I could po- how that could possibly be true, uh, that's the answer. Yeah, and I guess that kind of, even though you said don't try this at home, obviously for good reasons, I guess it kind of highlights um, a point I've heard you make in sort of given talks and other interviews about how it's so important to find your own trading method and not necessarily try and mimic exactly what someone else is doing. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's actually, when I give talks myself, uh, if there's any point I emphasize probably more than anything else, it's what you just said, you know, that don't look for the trading secret. There is no trading secret. Look for the trading method that's right for you, and it's not going to be the same for everybody. Uh, so uh, that's absolutely true. And then Baldemus's approach would be wrong for almost everybody, almost everybody. It's right for him because his nature is he just is not happy unless he's going against the crowd. He just always wants to be against the crowd. And if he tried trading another way, he probably wouldn't succeed because it's so against his nature. It's not a good way. He actually could. And in the interview, people, if people read that particular interview, they'll see, I'm trying to say, hey, you know, by the way, the reason he makes money uh, trading against the markets that way is not because he, he necessarily is great at picking tops and bottoms. It's because he's constantly trading against his position. So he's going short. The market comes back a little bit. He's buying it back. Uh, he's buying, you know, he would do like three, four, five hundred trades a day. And uh, he could be short like 500 stocks. But if some of them, have, whenever they did, you know, he's short that they, if they dip a bit, he'll take partial or total profits and then put them back on. So he's constantly taking profits out of the market that way. Uh, so that's what's really making his money. And he succeeds even though he's against going to major trends. I, it seemed clear to me that if he did the exact same thing, just trading against the positions, but went with the trend instead of against the trend, he would be a lot. He would be a lot better off. But, and I, I explicitly mentioned he, he never really argued it or, or could give any reason why that wouldn't be true. But it was just against his nature. He just had to be opposite the, the the wave in the market if there was a if there was a mania of any sort he had to be against it okay sure so i mean while we're on the topic of uh trading methods i mean you often hear people say keep it simple don't ever complicate things uh you know simple works best so my question is did you notice amongst any of the traders you've spoken with and who were doing extremely well uh, in the scheme of things, that for the most part, they do have a very simple approach, or is there an aspect of complexity to their success? I, I've seen both. You know, that's that's a type of uh, trade or factor that doesn't really. There is no there is no proper one for this. Is a you know successful successful traders use simpler approaches. Successful traders use complicated. But you know, I've seen both. Uh, again, going to something like Thorpe, he would he, his approaches were highly quantitative, highly complex. Um, and it was their complexity, I believe, that uh, not just the complexity for the sake of complexity, but complexity that was necessary, well, so let me say that again, complexity that was necessary to tease out the edge the edge that he found. Uh, or people like D. Shaw, again, ext- extremely complex approach. I mean, you're talking about trading virtually every market in the world, the all sorts of uh, derivatives, uh, outright markets, all sorts of options, uh, thousands and thousands of instruments, trading them all against each other with scores of models, with uh, teams of hundreds of PhDs. Yeah, I mean, you, you really can't get much more complicated. Uh, and it's the complexity. He's teasing out small 
uh, and well, he's not actually actively tra- tra- uh, participating anymore. He went off to do, pursue other uh, other endeavors, uh, particularly computational biochemistry. But uh, he um, uh, he des- he designed this whole process, and uh, and th- and uh, he was basically finding a lot of very very small edges, or that's what the approach does. And it ha- and, and it would not succeed without complexity. So you have that as clear. You have those examples for clear. Situations where you couldn't really be successful without that necessary complexity. On the other hand, you have other traders who who are not doing anything much more complicated than uh, than reading charts, but are particularly good at it, and uh, and use risk management and basically combine uh, chart pattern recognition with uh, with risk management. Uh, doesn't require a PhD. Uh, it, it does require some. It does require a skill to be able to uh, tell which patterns are more likely to result in a move one way or the other, and it does require the skill to use the appropriate risk management. But having those two properties, it can then be executed without really any great complexity. Uh, so I think it ranges. Uh, it ranges across the board. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that just sort of comes back again and highlights your point about finding a, a trading method that <clears throat> that meshes with your personality. Now, something that is forever embedded into my memory after reading, especially the New Market Wizards, was the necessity of having an edge. So I'm interested to get your take on this. What exactly is an edge? Like, how do you define it and how do you know if you have one? So first of all, there are people who who, mis, who misleadingly think that an edge is not absolutely necessary if you have uh, good good enough money management. There's uh, in fact there's a famous Wall Street saying that goes something like uh, even a poor system could make money with good money management. Now uh, that's absolutely one of the most ridiculous things that has ever been said. Uh, besides not being true, it's just absolutely stupid. And the reasons it's stupid is for the same reason. It would be stupid to think that you could go to Las Vegas and play roulette with a money management scheme and come out ahead. No, you can't come out ahead because the house has the edge. You have a negative edge. Uh, all you're going to do if you try to apply money management uh, is is to uh, guarantee that you lose. In fact, actually, money management in a situation like that would be bet all your money one time because that's that's your highest probability of winning. Um, so the, the 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 best money management scheme is real betting it all at once, which is really the opposite of money management. So uh, you can't be salvaged by money management. Now it's an the money management is absolutely essential, maybe more important than methodology, but it's not enough. You need to have an edge. So uh, this gets down to okay. So how do you know if you have an edge? Well, it's not one of those things you can you can uh, look up or find a rule or uh, prove absolutely. Uh, it's. Uh, I guess you could see it in your equity if you show some consistency of making money uh, without uh, unduly large drawdowns. Then over time, you can begin to conclude that you have an edge. Uh, if you are good at the markets, people who are good at the markets, another trait uh, that does typify really good traders is they have a high level of confidence. And that high level of confidence is impossible to have unless you're delusional, unless you do have an edge. So uh, it's a type of thing you have to sort of feel and believe on your own. It's not something that's definitively provable or anything like that. It's just that if you're in that groove and if you're 
kind of making money with some consistencies and have control of your losses, you get to the point where you feel that you have an edge and your equity your equity confirms that. I mean, uh, I mean you can feel that you have an edge and you're losing money, then you then then you're delusional, you know. So, but but if your equity curve is is reinforcing your uh, what you're feeling and seeing and, and executing your approach, uh, then you can jump to the conclusion that you do have an edge. But you need to have an edge, and, and an edge does not exist without a methodology. I've never met anybody who has an edge that doesn't have a very specific methodology. Yeah, that's really well said, Jack. Um, and just while we're on the subject, talk to us about one of your pet peeves, which you've labelled the well-chosen example. I really liked what you sort of said about this in uh, one of your books. So would you mind explaining what is the well-chosen example and why should traders be aware yeah. of this? Yeah, okay, that goes back to the, the very first time I wrote about that was back in Complete Guide to the Futures Markets, uh, which was done in 84. And um, basically what I was seeing uh, in the industry when I got into it was, oh, you'd have all these ads for trading systems, right? And they would show you uh, this trading system. They have a chart, and they would. Uh, well, there was like a, a perfect example would be like uh, you would have a chart, and it was a maybe uh, a euro dollar market or something like that, and and the the market would be uh, you'd show all these sells and buys, and the sells would be all near the highs, and the buys would be all near the lows, and it looks like oh wow, what an incredible system, and it could actually be an actual system that gave you those results, but. In that particular case, it would be a counter trend system that you kind of, uh, you you know, there was a market that kept on having false breakouts on both sides. And basically, if you use a system that that uh, sort of sold the breakouts instead of bought them, you did extremely well during that particular period of time. So you have a, a system that looks like it's really performing very well. But for that particular example, you use the same approach in a trending market and you'd go, you'd completely wipe out your, mar- your, your, your account. And actually, you know, the way... As I recall now, now that you mention it, I remember the thing that really drove this home. It was one day, you know, we had been working on trading systems and I had a partner that I was working with. Um, and uh, we developed these systems and spent some time on it or whatever. And it, I wouldn't say they were complicated, they weren't complex, but they were not super simple systems and uh, had some sophistication to it. Um, and then I read this article and it showed an example of, uh, I think it was a Swiss franc it was, and it showed it over a year or two time, and uh, it made like $37,000 at very small drawdowns, and the signals were just great. And then I ran our system, and we did nowhere near as well. Yeah, our system made money during that period, but, but nowhere near as well. And I was kind of discouraged. And the, and the system that was described, by the way, this was for a magazine article, right? It was a very simple system. It combined two moving averages. It, it sort of took something like a 20-day moving average and a six-day moving average. And uh, when they were both uh, long, you were long. And uh, when they were both short, you were you were short. And if they disagreed, you were neutral. And uh, I kind of, you know, knew that, well, I had, we had tested, so, you know, one of the early th- things we had did was test moving averages over, you know, different time periods and just as a basic, very simple approach. And I knew that, you know, 20-day moving average, low, or six-day moving averages didn't work did not work well. So how could how could the two of them work together where each one didn't work on its own? I knew that. So we we ran the analysis, the exact same system on a portfolio of maybe 30 markets. And here's what we found. 
no surprise, the one market it worked best on was the Swiss franc. And no surprise, the single year it worked best on was the year in the example. So the author had kind of found the one market for the one year where this particular approach worked best. Now, if you did the approach on the whole, on a, on a diversified portfolio, if I recall correctly, I think it lost money. Uh, but the one the one example looked phenomenal, and this this is, happens all the time. People write books, they'll write books uh, on charts and technical analysis and all this stuff, and they'll show you examples of how it worked. When I did the complete guide, and when I did the follow up uh, years later, the the uh, the Schwager on Future series. I went out of my way to choose examples where it, where things didn't work. In fact, I had a, a big section of the book where I took trades I was recommending as a uh, you know as a director of futures research, uh, and uh, I took a, a whole segment of trades that I'd uh, recommended as they were, and some were winners and some were losers. And uh, you know, basically, I didn't cherry pick. I just took them, and uh, I didn't try to make the winners more or losers. I was just kind of demonstrating what. What were the right choices? What were the wrong choices? And I went out of my way to show things that didn't work. I went out of my way to actually point out when I did classical chart analysis that that these patterns, well, they have. It's good to know them, and it's good to know how they they work more often than not, or how people expect them to work, or how you could theoretically use them. But also be clear that there's lots of times that they don't work out well, and in fact. What I call the most important rule in technical analysis is is a, is actually a failure rule. It's basically that when a chart pattern fails, that is a signal in itself, and it's a more important signal than when you get a, a chart pattern that seems to be confirmed. So uh, I always spent a lot of time making trying to make sure that people understood that don't just take anything because this example works. Don't jump to any conclusions. You always have to test everything on a broad portfolio over a broad number of years, and uh, and uh, but 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 almost all books, almost all articles don't do that. They just take things that work, and they allow the reader to jump to the conclusion that this thing is really the best thing uh, invented, and when it's really not. Yeah, I'm really glad you sort of went into that in, in so much detail, Jack. I think that's a really um, important point. Um, but let's move this along a little bit. So I'm keen to hear a bit more about what you're working on these days. Um, I know you're keeping busy with Cedar as well as been working on some indicators with um, Trade Shark. But let's start with uh, Cedar. So give us an overview of what this is all about and, and how this platform is helping traders to improve. Okay, so Fundseeder, uh, first of all, I give credit where credit is due. I like to say it was my idea. It wasn't my idea. Uh, it was an idea of a colleague, Emmanuel uh, uh, Bellari, who, who I was, who I work with um, um, on a different project. Uh, he, at the time, he was with uh, ADM Investor uh, uh, Services, and I was uh, actually our relationship started when I was still with Fortune Asset Management, which was a hedge fund advisory firm that got acquired. Uh, but we continued to work together, and uh, in terms of uh, constructing portfolios, and I was an advisor for, for that uh, project. And uh, these are portfolios of hedge funds. In any case, one day Emmanuel said to me, we were at a conference, and he threw. He said, I've, "I've had this idea. Tell me what you think of it." And he was the fund seeder concept. So this concept was, and what the fund seeder con- uh, concept is, is to create a uh, 
a website, uh, be a web meeting place that would be the in, the intermediary between uh, between undiscovered traders, primarily undiscovered. It doesn't have to be undiscovered traders, but traders, uh, particularly undiscovered traders, and investors looking for trading talent, and they could and they could meet that at the website. You know, sort of. Uh, you could also think of uh, Fundseeder. Uh, dot com as a, a search engine for trading talent. So that's the basic idea, and very critically, part of that idea is that you just don't do, uh, you just don't try to get traders to, to register with your site and put them on and get their numbers and post them. Uh, a very, very essential part of this concept is that you don't get the the numbers from the traders. You get the numbers directly from the broker. So traders would register on the website and link their accounts to the website. So therefore, the numbers that would be collected uh, on the website would be numbers coming directly from the brokers. So it uh, gives it much greater validity and, ver and sort of implicit verification in that process vis-a-vis most -vis sites which will just take numbers that, uh, that are provided. So that was also an essential element. And um, to, to get traders to, to, uh, to, to, the, to the website, uh, the key is that you're going to provide this verified track record, and that will make it easier, much easier, for traders who would have not a prayer in the world of attracting money, let alone institutional money, of being able to do so if they had trading talent. Uh, we, in fact, have uh, unbelievably, with the site still pretty early on, we're still in the early stages, but even at this point, we have literally over... Uh, traders registered from over 100 countries. I mean, I, I, I found that astounding that, uh, I mean, it's, I think it's astounding enough there's traders in 100 countries, but the fact that uh, we've already have, have that many different countries represented, and this is still very, very early on. We've only just recently expanded the site to go beyond the initial couple of brokers we were able to directly link with a few brokers, and now we can link with virtually all major brokers. Uh, but that just happened, so this was even before that point. Um, so you you take traders in some developing countries, let's say, or some Eastern European countries. Uh, take a trader, uh, uh, I don't know, anywhere. It could be in the Ukraine or whatever, uh, who has a math degree and develops a trading system that's uh, really good. Uh, is he going to have any chance of raising any money? <laughs> you know, uh, institutional money? Not a chance in the world. But if he can get a small stake together and trade it and get a, a track record that's coming from the broker, uh, he can build up a track record that can then be used to attract attention. So that's the basic concept. Now, so far, we've uh, we've only done the trader side of it. Uh, we had originally planned to have a trader and investor side uh, together as one website. And for regulatory reasons, we, we decided to keep those separate that we would have, uh, we would, right now, we're just in the process of building the trader side um, and getting, uh, uh, attracting as many, hopefully, talented traders as we can worldwide to the site and to building the track records and, and ultimately hoping to, to be the, the site people go to, to or, or, or that can be used to find trading talent. And, uh, at this point, there is no investor side because that's where our focus is. We will later this year uh, construct the investor side of that as a separate site, which we will then populate with. Uh, we will use traders from the trader side as sources, as source, uh, as a source for the uh, 
the uh, investor side. And uh, you know, the, the investor side will will be through a registered company, and which which will have all the appropriate regulatory compliance met and so forth. So we're just taking care to do it that way. Uh, but as far as traders are concerned, while this site does not directly uh, is not directly accessible by investors, there will be we will, there'll be a one company that that holds both sites, and and if if there's trading talent that that shows up on on the fundseater.com, uh, we're, we're going to be using that site to find trading talent and hopefully uh, in the future lead some of that trading talent or connect that, I would say, connect some of that trading talent with uh, investors, uh, primarily, basically, or maybe only institutional type investors looking to allocate money to undiscovered traders. Oh, and I should add one thing. The the site right now there's an there's a current platform that allows it allows traders to do stuff that they really can't do on a, on, mo, on most normal platforms like get an equity curve and do analysis on the equity curve. We are, however, this is that was basically the first platform we're using. We we currently have in the development a uh, uh, we have a technology team doing a whole completely new uh, platform that will have. Literally, literally 20 different trading tools, uh, including all sorts of graphics and analytics uh, that one can perform on 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 one's trading record, both uh, the equity and trades themselves. And we'll we'll allow and that uh, will allow stuff like uh, besides just uh, equity charts or uh, even underwater charts or uh, or other, uh, we'll allow charts, say rolling charts of uh, 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 let's say rolling return charts or rolling sharp ratio or any metric you want to choose. Uh, we'll have tools that allow traders to create technical, uh, use technical tools, let's say like a crossover moving average to uh, apply to their equity curve so they can signal when their equity curve is, tra- is starting to trend down. So they could uh, use that as a cautionary signal to to maybe take a second look at their trading or maybe cut back trading or stop trading or whatever. So we'll have uh, we'll have Monte Carlo simulations on and on and on. Now that new uh, much more comprehensive and much better graphics website will come on stream probably sometime in the fall. Uh, if people go to fundseater.com and register, then anytime we do any new, anything new, uh, like uh, we just did when we expanded the uh, the accessibility through almost all major brokers, which was a new thing. We did that uh, just uh, days ago. We put out a newsletter. So if you're registered and we do, we have the new platform. You'll be you'll be notified of that. And and traders now, as I say, almost no matter who their brokers are, can probably link to the site. Okay, excellent. I mean, that sounds like a really good, um, really good platform. Definitely can see how it's going to help a lot of traders out. Um, one thing I've got to ask is, have you been surprised and maybe pleasantly shocked with some of the results and talent that have been produced by users of the site? Uh, well, it's too new to, to answer that question because, uh, you know, we're, unfortunately, track records materialize in real time and we're tracking from when... Now, in some cases, it depends. It, with some brokers like Interactive Brokers, I think they're a, when they sign up from there, the backtracker gets get, gets uh, imported. And we do have some, some good tr- traders that are evident through that. Uh, but it depends on the broker. And for a lot of brokers, uh, there's no past record that's imported, so it just gets built in real time from the point of the registration or the account linking. Uh, in some cases, a small amount of data. But for the most part, for most traders, we really have to wait for the track records to develop. Uh, 
Now, I do fully, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm actually, one of the things I do anticipate is that we'll, we will find some really exceptional traders that are unknown to the world through this process by giving, you know, linking out on a global fashion. Like I say, once you go out, you're literally getting people from 100 plus countries, you're going to be looking at people that no one else has looked at before. And that combined with the idea that you only need a tiny, tiny fraction of all traders to be really good to have a substantial number of excellent traders. So uh, I don't know how many traders there are. Where, you know, there's certainly there's certainly many millions, maybe tens of millions across the world. Who knows? But you only need a uh, a tiny fraction of those, a fraction of one percent to be good. To uh, to really have a large number of good traders, so it doesn't have to be a large percentage. Uh, so I fully expect that we will have some really good traders come out of this process. And in fact, one of the things people will see if they go on the website is something this thing called market wizard search. What the market wizard search is is there's going to be some future book called undiscovered market wizards, and that uh, the, those undiscovered market wizards will be will come from traders we. We discover through this website and uh, book ain't going to happen this year or next year. It's going to take a, a few years of kind of uh, having this thing run. And um, uh, but at some future point when we feel we have uh, or I feel I have enough traders identified through the site who seem to have been able to perform for enough time with enough consistency, then there'll be this book called Undiscovered Market Wizards. So I'm, I'm expecting that to be ha happen. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't find uh, enough traders to fill a book. Very cool. I mean, that's, um, that's definitely something to look forward to. So all the traders in that book you plan on sort of um, sourcing from funds. That's, seed, yeah, that that's correct? what, that, that's, that's the plan. That's the plan. I, I, I guess I shouldn't, I mean, if I find some unknown trader, uh, unknown trader in a different way, uh, I guess I wouldn't rule out that they would go, but my primary source for this book is going to be indeed the website. Uh, that's the plan. And, uh, you know, I, if I'm wrong, there wouldn't be a book, but I, I really have trouble believing that we, that I won't find at least a uh, volume of, uh, I'm sure I'll find more than that. I think I will, we will have more than enough people to be able to choose, you know, a, a book's worth of, of what, what I call undiscovered market wizards. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I'm sure you will. Um, I'm sure you'll definitely find some. So, um, let's let's just change topics and, and speak a little bit about um, the tr on the trade shark front. Um, I'm keen to hear about the indicators sure. you've been working on there. So, tell us a little bit about maybe what trade shark is and the indicators you've been working okay. on. Okay, so trade shark is a chart software company, and uh, not just because I I did a project with them, but their chart software is really very good. Uh, you can tailor your charts uh, very precisely the way you want them. Easy, it's intuitive, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very, very nice chart package and lots of indicators and including in the quite a number of proprietary indicators. Uh, but the, that, that's a matter of people find what works for them and so forth. So I never, I never endorse other, you know, indicators or anything else because uh, even my own, I wouldn't say any uh, are, uh, I don't make any guarantees about, I, I mean, I can tell you what they are and all that. But so they had asked me to, um, to do this project. Uh, they wanted me to create some indicators and uh, they have, a, they had two other people that had created, uh, Larry Williams and I think Ralph Fitz had created some proprietary indi indicators for them. 
And they asked me if I would be willing to do that. And I said, you know, I'll tell you the truth, I'm, I'm just not an indicator person. I actually don't use indicators myself, have not used them. And while I've worked on systems, I, training systems, I've done a fair amount of work on training systems, I've really never done indicators. Uh, but I said, let me think about it. And I thought about it. What I actually ended up doing was I realized that the system work that I had done could actually be transformed into uh, indicators. And uh, so uh, there was a project I had done way back, uh, well, I guess it was uh, at least 20, over 25 years ago. Um, and I had done it with a, my partner at the time, Louis Lukak, who, uh, who was a real computer whiz. And uh, he uh, he's always programmed everything I've done actually since the time we met. Uh, he's always been the fellow who's done the uh, all, all the all the uh, footwork, all the programming, and all the hard work, you know. And uh, so anyway, we had developed when I was a when I was at uh, Prudential. I had developed this in-house trading system, and we had come up with certain systems that we were putting out signals on, and all of that. So the idea was to use those systems with different parameters, and uh, and and they, those systems included both trend and some counter trend. Uh, uh, approaches, and the idea was to create indicators that were composites of those, uh, you know, using different inputs, different combining different systems, so to speak, into a single indicator. So there's one one indicator that's called the trend, the trend weight. Well, the trend weight's really a composite of different systems, and there's a there's also an overbought, oversold indicator, which is a composite of different uh, uh, counter trend systems, and there's uh, there's a there's one that's directional weight, which basically adds the two together. So uh, you know, if the trend weight, if the market's trending, 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 and the trend's sort of at a reaches a maximum reading and stays there for a while, or is very high readings, eventually the the counter trend starts to build up, and at some point, it could the, if the directional weight, which combines the two, could come back to zero, or even reverse direction, while the trend is still uh, looks like it's running. Uh, so that's a third tool, and then there's something called a dual trend, which which basically takes uh, which takes a uh, trend weight and combines it with one of uh, Trade Shark's own indicators, which is a much shorter term indicator. So my stuff tends to be more. The indicators are really, and I uh, I did a set of videos. The videos are available for free at TradeShark.com. You could find them. Uh, you could find the indicators. Uh, uh, there's a, not the indicators, the videos. So the videos are for free. And you can look at them. Uh, so this is all explained. So there's one on each approach. Uh, but and there's one called the dual trend, where the dual trend takes the trend, the trend weight, which is which is intended to capture long-term trends in the market. That's what it that does really well. And it's good at staying with trends and all that. It has the same. It has defects of any trend approach, which if you get a very choppy market, it is going to lose money. Uh, but on balance, over the years, the reason I took something 25 years old, so we could test it for the past 25 years, I wanted to make sure that in the interim it, it was, you know, something that had a significant uh, edge in working versus, you know, you know, so that I could make at least confidently say that based upon 25 years plus empirical evidence, there's a much better chance going with it than against it. Um, so. Uh, it was important to be able to test something like that blind. That's why I wanted to use something that was developed a long time ago. Uh, in any case, uh, that is combined with the with trade charts, another uh, trade chart indicator, which is much shorter term, and that's called the dual trend. And I kind of like that because they're so different, and that uh, uh, the dual trend will change very quick, much more quickly. 
but it also is does no that won't be anywhere near as good in riding trends. Uh, and combining the two is kind of has nice properties. So that's a fourth approach. So the, there are these approaches. They're explained by the videos. Uh, it's more they're more inclined towards a systematic approach to markets. And I also arranged them. One of the key things I did was to make them to have them each have inputs that, that needed to be defined. So there's not just one fixed way to use it. You have to define a threshold, threshold conditions for each of these indicators. Um, and there's also, you can choose something like an early exit, an early reversal, which are explained. And by doing that, you can turn these indicators into your own sort of approach, which is very important because I, I, I don't want to go counter to my own advice. I always tell people, don't just get a trading system and follow it. Don't buy somebody else's trading system and follow it because the odds are you're not going to last because as soon as it has a bad period and every system has a bad period, you're going to abandon it because it's not yours. So I made these so that they can be they can be combined, they can be used together, they can be used, uh, you can vary each one. And so uh, two different users can develop completely different signals off of the same indicators. And that was critical because uh, uh, one of the essential points is that users need to make these to, to, to choose the, the parameters that go with these uh, approaches so that they fit the way they are comfortable trading the markets. And when you, when you do anything, one thing that's good about TradeShark is that you can actually see, like you could do stuff, in, which I do in the videos, is like anytime there's a buy signal, it's shaded green. Anytime there's a sell signal, it's shaded red. And it's neutral, it's let's say yellow as an example. Well, you can superimpose that on the price chart as a lightly shaded backgrounds, and you can pull in the data, let's say, the last 10 years, and then you can walk through 10 years of data using this particular approach and see exactly how the market did. It's not fitting it to what it did. You you could see, you know, had you done this 10 years ago, and theoretically you could have done this 10 years ago, again, because it's based upon stuff that was developed 25 years ago, uh, how it would have performed in a real sense. And you can get, so users can get a real sense of how what one particular adaption of these indicators would actually work and can experiment and, and, and see very visually how where the buys and sells are coming in. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, good one. Well, I'll put a link to those yeah. videos um, in the show notes for this interview. At, um, and if you want to access the show notes, just go to uh, chatwithtraders.com forward slash 27 and uh, the links will be underneath the interview. But I mean, Jack, we should probably start to wrap things up because we've been going on for a little while now. But before we do this, one last question, and I'm sure you have a ton of great quotes and one-liners which you've picked up over the years, and it wouldn't be right to ask you what's your favorite, but is there just one or two quotes that you would like to leave us with uh, before we wrap okay, things up? Okay, that's an interesting question. Okay, I'll, I'll give you two quotes. I'll give you one quote from one of the people I interviewed, and I'll give you one quote uh, that's my own. Um, so, uh, interview from the people I interviewed, and this is the quote, this is what I tell people. If, if someone said to me, Jack, you know, we want you to give your best trading advice. We only got one, there's one kind of uh, condition or constraint here. You can only use 10 words. Um, so if I can only give advice in 10 words, right? And this is the quote I would use. And it's a quote from Bruce Kovner. And the quote is, know we are getting out before you get in. Um, and uh, the quote that I would use, and I guess I should just make explain why that's so important. 
Well, for one thing, it, it sort of guarantees uh, risk management. And for the other thing is, it is much more subtle. And that subtlety is, you're making a, a decision of where to get out of a trade before you get in means that you can make that decision uh, with the benefit of complete objectivity. Anybody who's been a trader will know that once you're in a position, you lose objectivity. So uh, most people, almost everyone, will get into position and figure out, worry about getting out at some later point. And but once you're in a position, your 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 thinking gets clouded. If you can decide that ahead of time, as Bruce Kavanaugh suggests, uh, then you're thinking from a much more objective, and I believe a potentially successful frame of reference. As far as my quoting myself, uh, there's a line I have, I'm sort of paraphrasing it, and it goes to this idea of uh, finding your own approach to market. And the line is, there's a million ways to make money in the markets. Uh, unfortunately, they're all very difficult to find, but there are a million ways. And, and, and uh, the point is, don't worry about finding the one way. Uh, there are lots of different ways, but they're hard to find, but there are lots of ways. And, and only a very, very small number of types of ways are, are going to be right for you. Yeah, both extremely great quotes, uh, Jack. Thanks so much for sharing those. And thank you so much for coming on the well, show. I appreciate that. Uh, that's, you. Uh, you know, you, you really did your homework on those questions. And uh, you did a really extremely, you know, I've, I've done quite a number of interviews over the years. And you did a really good job on uh, touching on a lot of different subjects and uh and clearly doing your homework. Uh, so uh, um, I, uh, I appreciate that from uh, from your side. And I, I think the one the one drawback is that I think this broadcast this podcast could end up so so long that maybe you have to break it into two parts. I don't know, uh, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. But before um, and thank you very much for that. I appreciate um, appreciate your feedback there. Um, before you go, do you want to share with listeners where they can go to find out more about you and um, stay in touch with what you're up right. to? Right. Okay. So, you know, again, the the main site, that, you know, that the, the company that I'm involved in is funseeder.com. I also have uh, a Jack Schwager, my name.com, uh, which I, uh, you know, no longer update, but there's stuff up there. You know, there's stuff up there, uh, you know, uh, uh, interviews and uh, articles and, uh, and uh, links to books and stuff like that. But, uh, the uh, and and uh, and the other site is funcita.com. So th- th- those are the two sites I would direct people to. Okay, good one. Well, I'll put links to everything we've mentioned during the interview. So your books. Um, you're also on Twitter, aren't oh, you? Oh yeah, so yeah. Put yeah your Twitter handle Schwager, in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Cool. And uh, links to Funcita, Trade Shark, and yeah, everything that's been mentioned. Just go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash twenty seven, and you'll find everything there in the show notes. Again, Jack. Thanks a lot for doing this. Um, take care and let's talk soon. Oh, it was fun doing. Okay. Have a good one, Aaron. Thanks, Jack. You've come to the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but don't worry, more great episodes are on the way. To stay updated with each great new episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and we'd love it if you leave us a rating and review. We'll see you next time on Chat with Traders. 